Hey everyone, this is Matt here from Free Associations. Uh, I want to alert you to a, a really nice bonus episode that we recorded in which we did our first ever interview with the author and we let our an author respond to some of the critiques that we had of, of her study. It was an interview with uh, Kate Grabowski who in episode 14 of the podcast, we talked about her study on the declining HIV incidence in Uganda and what might explain it. And we got her on to to, re, to rebut a few of the comments. We hope you will go and, and listen to the full episode. Welcome to Free Associations from the Boston University School of Public Health, the Public Health and Medical Journal Club podcast for anyone who gets confused by that recent report on the medical literature in the news. I'm Matt Fox, Professor of Epidemiology and Global Health. And as always, I am here with Don Thea and Chris Gill from the Department of Global Health. Hey, Matt. And we are here in the Boston University Godly Studio. So before we get started, we want to take a second to remind you about Population Health Exchange. Population Health Exchange is the Boston University School of Public Health's resource hub for lifelong learning. Find out more at www.pophealthex.org. That's www.pophealthex.org, where you'll find this podcast as well as many other population health learning programs and tools. And just a reminder, uh, we'd love it if you would go ahead and and uh, if you get to us through iTunes, if you go ahead and give us a, a rating, which really helps other people find us. Um, and uh, I, I also uh, wanted to remind people that we got some listener feedback, which we responded to i responded to on a facebook live post which chris has no idea about apparently but don definitely does uh and so you can go through and and find that on our on our webpage. um and i also want to note that we uh we hit a milestone which is that our our very first episode has broken a thousand downloads Woo-hoo! so well done <laughs> to all of us and all of you for listening so and now onto the show so today in our first segment, the Journal Club segment, we are going to get into a review that looks at whether vitamin D and calcium supplements are effective at reducing fractures. And then in the second part of the podcast, which is our deep dive, we are going to talk about the travesty that is statistical significance. Okay, that might be an overstatement. Uh, so we're going to talk about statistical significance and hypothesis testing. And then in our third segment, which is our amazing and amusing segment, we will get into some things that tickled our funny bones, or Chris will explain why Marmite is so much better than Vegemite or the opposite I can't even remember. So. Depends where you grew up. Probably, well, Chris, which is it? Probably. Um, if you're Australian, it's Vegemite. It, it's, it's depends on where you grew up. It's true. It's, uh-huh. it's, uh, it's, a, it's a regional delicacy. Let's gotcha. put it that way. Gotcha. All right. So let's get into it. In segment one, we are going to get into a review that looked at whether vitamin D and calcium supplements are effective at preventing fractures. And this was from an article that was published in the Journal of the American Medical Association, so though known to those in the know as JAMA, and it is entitled The Association Between Calcium or Vitamin D Supplementation and Fracture Incidents in Community-Dwelling Older Adults, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis with uh, lead author uh, Zhao from the Department of Orthopedic Surgery in Tinjan Hospital in China. And as usual, let me give you some of the headlines because this one definitely got uh, a lot of traction. So the Washington Post says calcium and vitamin D supplements may not protect against bone fractures. The New York Times says vitamin D and calcium don't prevent bone fractures. CBS News, should you really be taking calcium and vitamin D supplements? 
Uh, the LA Times says, do you take calcium and vitamin D to protect your bones? A new study says it doesn't help. And NBC News says vitamin D calcium supplements may not lower risk, may not lower bone fracture risk. Um, so, Don, let me start with Matt. you. You're here, right? I am. Okay, just making sure. Let me start with you. Can you uh, can you describe for us what the study was all about, what they did, and given that this is a uh, is a question that has been heavily researched, why in particular we needed another study on this particular topic? Yeah, thanks, Matt. Um, well, clearly this this is a, a very uh, important problem because um, fractures due to bone loss. Um, produces a lot of um, morbidity in the elderly population. And in fact, there's one study that indicated that there's um, more than one-fifth of patients die within one year of a hip fracture. So this is a really serious mm. public health problem. problem. And there have been a number of studies um, that have been done, individual studies that have been done on this topic, looking at the, um, the, the effect of dietary as well as supplementary calcium, vitamin D, or the combination of the two over the course of the years, I think beginning around 1980. In the 1980s, um, there's been an increased number of these studies, and when there's a lot of studies in a particular area, um, investigators tend to lump them together and do studies of studies, which we call meta-analyses. And so there've been a number of meta-analyses, and um, there have been varying results. And because there have been a number of bigger, um, more rigorous studies of late, these authors decided to look back at the data that has been available only over the course of the last 10 years. Um, so what they did is they did a, essentially a meta-analysis according to very strict criteria, which we call Cochrane criteria, which is the, uh, it's a Cochrane review, which is um, really the rules of the game were established by the Cochrane, I think it's Institute out of, out of the UK, in terms of how to systematically and rigorously um, collect the data and analyze the data. And these authors really um, approached it from, from those standpoints and very, very um, ardently adhered to the Cochrane database guidelines. And in essence, what they did is they went through the literature and they uh, pulled um, studies that had um, calcium supplementation, vitamin D supplementation, or both, and fractures in their titles. And they, they whittled it down to studies that they felt were of high quality um, that looked at these particular topics. And they found 33 of those trials comprised of 51,000 individuals who all met the criteria um, um, the predetermined criteria of quality um, that that they had they had laid out, and these studies had to have as an outcome um, a fracture. The primary outcome was a hip fracture. And secondary outcomes were non-vertebral or total vertebral or total fractures, which means it could have been anywhere, right? It, right, it could have been anywhere. But the primary outcome that they were looking for was hip fractures, in part because hip fractures are, are, are really the most important, they're the most serious, most serious and the most common because it's a part of the body, part of the skeleton that that undergoes the most stress. And if you know if the if the the scaffolding is is weak, then that's that's likely where it's going to break. And they, I don't think we should get into the details, but they, they um, went through a very systematic assort, assortment of the articles according to seven identified areas of bias, like randomization sequence generation or allocation conce concealment, and they racked and stacked them as high quality, um, uh, uh, high bias, low bias, and then they put into that also um, other quality factors, and they and they categorize them as to, as high quality, medium quality, or low quality studies. And this this is important later on in terms of the analysis. And um, essentially, what they did was they 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 pulled those data together. 
um, and they um, looked at um, the overall effects of calcium alone, vitamin D alone, or a combination of the two in terms of those primary and secondary outcomes that I mentioned. Um, and so they did sort of three separate sub-analyses according to those various categories. They also looked at, um, and they decided to do this ahead of time, which I think is, adds strength to the study, is they looked at certain characteristics um, that might have influenced the likelihood that they would, they would have a particular finding, like sex, um, or what were some of the other ones? Age. Previous um, fracture. Previous fracture, yep. things like that. Mm -hmm. And they, they, they then did a series of subsequent analyses looking at those, those various characteristics. And really the, 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 the headline outcome of this, all of these investigations was that when they use this large sample size, when they use this rigorous approach with the data that was available publicly, they ended up finding no real associations between dietary intake of supplementary vitamin D, um, calcium, or the combination of the two. And I think that that's what's generated most of the, uh, of the headlines. But when you dive down into the actual data and you disaggregate it and you look at all the cells and various things, there are some interesting <laughs> observations. Very interesting things going on, yeah. yeah things that are, that are going on that I think is, is sort of worth teasing out and, yep. and, 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 and looking into. So, all right, so we will, we will get into all of that. So, Chris, why don't you... Uh, why don't you start us off here? What's your what's your take on this study? Yeah, so it's um interesting. I was when I was skimming through this and looking at their their data tables yeah. and sort of looking down the relative risks for the, their their sub analyses. And so like if you just go with their first analysis where they were looking just at the relationship between calcium supplementation and and hip fracture, which Don has pointed out is like the the most important. Uh, medical outcome that we're trying to avoid here through for, through calcium. Um, you know, the thing that sort of leaps out is like in addition to all these randomized trials, you know, with, with the exception of one having no significant association, um, you know, meaning that they they don't appear to be helpful. Helpful. The trend in almost all cases is that there's a slightly increased risk from calcium harm. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, it's harmful. Yeah, slightly. Yeah. So if anything, the calcium supplementation seemed to be slightly harmful, um, and 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 that alone kind of like goes, huh? You know, and the the one statistically significant finding on this was read the study by Reed et al., where the relative risk ratio for hip fracture with the calcium supplementation was 3.4, with a risk ratio uh, confidence interval of 1.3 to 9. So, um, you know, and overall, the, the, the meta-analysis suggested that there was really basically no effect. But if there is an effect, it's a slight increase in the risk, which is Absolutely counterintuitive, right? And, and, and we should point out these. Are, this is a review of trials. This right, is not right. observational studies where your concern about confounding is greater. Exactly, because I had are, to sort of do a, I had to do a little bit of a sort of uh, uh, you know a methodological double take because I was like, wait a minute, are we looking at observational studies or randomized controlled trials? Um, and I was like, actually, we are only looking at randomized controlled trials. So all those issues about selection bias, like you know, if this was a, a, a you know. Um, you know, if you're looking at an observational study hypothetically and, and you're wondering, does calcium supplementation lead to an increased risk of osteoporotic fractures, I would say absolutely it will in, in most observational studies because there's going to be a self-selection bias that the people who are at risk of hip fractures are going to take calcium. And so there's reverse causality. I would call that... Con 
Uh, reverse causality, confounding. confounding by indication, yeah, yeah. you know, whatever you want to yeah, call yeah, yeah. it. Sure. All, they all mean the same thing in a sense. Um, but uh, it's not. This is not, this is not what same. we're... No, they're all ahead. RCTs. This, but these are but all these randomized are controls trials. So that effect should, be, should have been washed out. So the fact that this is this sort of slightly increased risk... Um, makes me think that 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 sort of yet again we've sort of in clinical medicine we've wandered into this quagmire where we see an association between low calcium and fractures and we therefore flip that relationship and say well therefore if we give calcium fractures will go down right low calcium means fractures up high calcium means should mean fractures go down right that's yep. the that's the basic logic here but in between those two you know the 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 you know, the putative input, which is the calcium, and the putative output, which is the fracture, there's a lot of biology in between those two areas. And the the, the biology of calcium homeostasis, and are we doing, going to talk about the... Um we're going to talk about uh, calcium homeostasis in our next podcast, yeah. but we're not going to go into it today. But in between those two streams is is a ton of molecular biology, um, which means that you know we are reducing a very complex homeostatic process to something very, very, very simple. Now, with all that said, there's a there's a very good reason why people might want to use calcium and vitamin D, yeah, which is that hip fractures are a big problem. Calcium is cheap, and it's basically you can eat. Oh, for most and all intents and purposes, you can. It's very hard to eat too much calcium. Okay, I mean, you you could if you really tried. I'm not gonna. But you know, basically, you you, you really yeah, can't. Yeah. So vitamin D, unless you're prone to, to kidney stones. Le, yeah, unless you have kidney stones, or or I mean, there's a sort of a grab bag full of relatively rare diseases where you might not want to. But right. generally speaking, calcium is safe stuff. Um, and the same thing with vitamin D. I mean, you can you can poison yourself by taking too much vitamin D. It's called hypervitaminosis D. Not surprisingly, and and it you know it's dangerous, but it's pretty hard to eat your way into too much vitamin D. You could you could do it if you tried <laughs> That's a lot of it. <laughs> tried significantly, but you have to really go for it. Yeah, okay. We're not talking about be... eating like a pound of cheddar cheese every day. We're talking about like really going for it. Okay. Right. right. So all right. Um, having a milk so, fetish. You know, so all that mitigates the the you know the there's low risk here. Like so, yeah. if calcium and or vitamin D in some combination thereof was helpful and not harmful, then you know it's party time, and this is great news, right? But the problem is that the biology. It's party time. The problem is that the molecular biology is way more subtle than that. Yes. And just eating calcium, <laughs> it's not enough. It's not enough. It's not enough. It's not that you just need more substrate. It's that the, the cells and the homeostatic feedback loops in there have to use that calcium in a way that is advantageous. Mm -hmm. And it is way just too simple, simple-minded, that's probably a little bit harsh, but simplistic to assume that just eating more calcium, taking a hormone that, by the way, for those who do not know, the, 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 the biological action of... One of the many, many biological actions of vitamin D, because it's a very complicated hormone. Um, it's not really vitamin, actually. It's a hormone. <clears throat> I'll get back to that. Both All of right. you looking skeptically I, at me. I, but, I don't know the answer, but um, uh, Don it, it's, might. It's a hormone. Um, is that true, Don? I don't think so. The uh, main, Don is the main, not in agreement. I'll come back with it, because I'm going to prove to you that I'm right. Oh, but the, the main, hard trouble, Don. The, uh, <laughs> the main function of vitamin D is to increase the absorption of, of dietary calcium. Yep. And so you're eating calcium, and then you're taking a hormone that, that like pulls it into your body more. But the problem is that the kidneys are just going to say all that, see all that excess calcium and go like, out it goes again. You know, you just pee more calcium. It doesn't necessarily go into strangling, but no. Now, the reason why it's a, it's a, a hormone, not a vitamin, is that vitamins are by definition things that are not produced endogenously by your own biochemistry and metabolism. Whereas so, vitamin whereas D vitamin is, D is synthesized yeah. by your own body, and most vitamin D is, is due to sun exposure, and it's the, it's a conversion of cholesterol into the vitamin D molecule through exposure to ultraviolet light. Do you accept that oh, argument? And what is the vitamin D gland? <laughs> the skin. 
That's not what I. That's not what I remember from endocrinology. Well, but, you might but, go back to it because I read this yesterday. <laughs> okay. All right. So we'll leave that controversy Whereas hanging. Dietary vitamin D is relatively unimportant. All right. Okay. Um, all right. So I want to go back to some 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 things that you raised. In particular, uh, I want to throw this out there, which is: is this? Uh, and this is something that we've talked about on the podcast a number of times, but it's something that that that. Uh, I think we get hung up on a bit, and I, I say this with all understanding that you can look at many of my studies and we're often in the same boat because it's very hard to do, but are we asking a question here that is relevant? And By which I mean, are we asking a... People want to know the answer, is dietary supplements of, of calcium or vitamin D or both, whatever it is, does it prevent hip fracture? Yes or no? As if that was a single thing. It's a It's a binary. And it's not a binary. There's loads of different questions that you could potentially ask here that relate to supplementation with calcium and or vitamin D together or alone. We talk a lot in epidemiology about dose and duration, right? How much of this stuff for how long? And then we often qualify that in terms of after what age, you know, what, what, how much. At what point in pathology also? Yeah. I mean, I mean how is, much is it, bone loss is necessary, if any? To have to, to 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 exist for this to be an effect, or is it is it is it possible that the the uh, effect is really only uh, it's really only effective if you start taking it in say your forties and continue taking it all the way until you're right. you're old enough? Or you know some of these trials were done with people of an average age of, of of eighty. You know, is it just sort of too late at that point and your body just can't process it? So the idea that this is a single question is to me, um, it's, it's misleading. There, there isn't a single question. There's lots of questions. And, you know, if you think about it, this sort of sort of the smoking and, and lung cancer, and if you could lived in a world in which there were no ethics and, and you could do whatever you want, you might want to do, you know, we might want to know not just does smoking cause lung cancer, but does smoking one cigarette in your entire life give you lung cancer mm-hmm. compared to two cigarettes, compared to three, compared to four? And then, you know, would we want, uh, you know, after a certain age, before a certain age. I mean, there's an infinite number of questions that we want to ask. Now, obviously, we can't. Right. We can't do that because you'd never get enough people, even in the ethics aside, to be able to do that. But but, but these trials, I'm not sure they're all answering the same question. And therefore, yeah. the idea that you would get these sort of null findings, even if maybe there's some harm or some benefit, strikes me as plausible because some of these trials may be answering questions where there is no benefit. You know, after a certain age, it just doesn't matter. Whereas some of them may be answering questions in populations where there is. So I'm not yeah, sure. You know, I, I have some of the same problems with meta-analyses. I mean, we're sort of always taught that meta-analysis is, is, is kind of the highest level of scrutiny on the, on the hierarchy of scientific, scientific evidence and proof. And, and I'm always a little bit unsettled for reasons similar to what mm-hmm. you're saying, Matt, because when you, when you pull together a number of studies, a large number of studies that you've screened as, being ask, as, as asking similar, somewhat similar questions, they're each going to be different in small ways in terms of, of how they accrued patients or how they randomized or how they, how they you know, all, all, all sorts of different things. And, and I wonder whether that really works against us finding an effect because it's kind of reversion to the mean or it's, it's, it's kind of, you know, whatever, whatever signal might be being canceled out by noise in, in some of the other studies. So I'm not, I mean, what's your level of confidence with meta-analysis? I mean, I think a really good example here is that they're, they're, they included a couple of studies that had a four-month duration. Yep. Mm-hmm. How in the right. world are you ever going to be able to see mm-hmm. biologically an effect of no. any of these things in four months? I mean, that, that just strains credibility. Because this is a chronic disease, 
osteo osteomalacia or osteoporosis. It's something that evolves over years, if not decades. Decades, right? No, and you've got you've got here studies that are uh, some of them were tiny studies, you know, done in in the. Uh, you know, a hundred or so Although people. Although they, they do weight those. The no, size no, obviously of the they, they, they get weighted. I'm just saying these were. But but hang on. But if you're weighting together studies that are, are fundamentally answering different questions, that I'm not sure you, right. you 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 do. Yeah, you do. I think you do a little bit of a disservice. But um, you know, the the uh, a third of the patients for the hip fracture or the calcium supplements comes from one study. So, you know, how much of this is being driven by the answer to one particular question? Uh, some of these were done, as I said, in, in populations that were averaging uh, 40, 50 years old. Some were averaging 80 years old. The uh, type of supplement being used was different in different mm -hmm. studies. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there, there, it just strikes me that there's a lot of different questions that you could potentially be asking here. And putting them all together, you know, I understand the, the impetus to do so because we certainly want to take the best, uh, to take advantage of the fact that we've got lots of different uh, evidence that at least is around a, a similar topic, but we want to be careful. There is actually a statistic in here that is designed to at least think about the heterogeneity within these different studies. It, fortunately, it's a statistical measure. It doesn't get at the the, the specific issues of the design. And that's called the I-squared statistic, which is something they, they make a big point of in the methods, and then they never talk about mm – -hmm. well, they, they make a point of in the methods. And then they never talk about um, – the I-squared, you can think of it as the percentage of the – um, the variation in the results that's explained by differences in the studies. And in many of them, the different comparisons, the I-squared is, is 0%. Some of them, the... the meaning meaning what? So that 40%. means that there's it means, very little difference between those two studies if the I-squared is zero? Meaning, yeah, you're, you're essentially, there's a little hetero... These are, these are the kind of, the statistically speaking... The, the data believes these are similar studies. So it's not heterogeneous. So they're, yeah. no, they're in some cases, homogeneous. it's 40%, which is mm -hmm. quite high. Now, I don't want to make too much of that, but I just point is, I, I think we do have to be careful about what these different studies are actually getting at. Mm -hmm. and, and yet, with that said, there's, there's a, you know, a surprising degree of, of agreement, um, yeah. particularly with, with some of the vitamin D supplement trials, where, the, again, the, they all either hug really close to no effect or, in many cases, show a slight uh, suggestion of harm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I think that's an important point, which is the neither the, the the results don't really describe that, or the, excuse me, the discussion doesn't really get into that, and certainly the media didn't pick up on that accordingly. Uh, is the fact that you know they 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 conclude essentially that there is there is no benefit. Yep. Which strikes me as probably true, but um, in some cases there it seems to be some evidence of harm. That yeah. There isn't a statistically significant detected harm. And we're not talking about big harms here. Nothing, nothing that would be, um, uh, we're not talking about large, uh, effect sizes, but, um, the, the effects are, are going in the wrong direction. They're going towards the harmful. I think, um, one thing that I really appreciate about this is they, they give us both the absolute and the relative comparisons, which I think is something we don't do enough of. Mm -hmm. So, um, typically in, in epidemiology, we, we, we have the choice of, of, of dividing or subtracting the the rates of the outcome within particular group rates or proportions in this case I think we're talking about proportions so we count up what proportion of people uh, get hip fracture in those who got supplementation what percent get it in the group that don't and we either divide those or we subtract them we divide them typically if we're looking for cause and effect it's a good way to sort of see effects if they exist risk those ratio are your relative risk ratios relative measures hazard ratios things like that or you can subtract them. And get and your absolute gets, risks. It, absolute. And that gets at the sort of the public health implications. The risk difference. Yeah. How much 
And also, how big is this thing we're talking about? Yeah. And so if you're looking here, we're talking about uh, risk ratios on the order of 1.5 at most, the maximum, 1.6, I think. So about a 60% relative increase in risk for hip fracture associated with taking calcium. Not statistically significant, which again, is not my thing, but if you're into that- No, associated with taking placebo. Sorry, sorry, I said that wrong. You're right. 50% increased risk associated with taking calcium. Well, if it's if the risk the risk ratio on on table on figure two has it at one point five three in favor of and it's not statistically significant in favor of placebo or no treatment. Define in favor of. That's that's what I, what I'm I'm not sure I'm how they're defining. So so calcium would confer favoring, harm. No favor placebo means calcium is harmful. Yeah. That's how I read it as well. So 1.5 indicates 50% increase in hip fracture associated with taking calcium. Yep. Right. Yep. Calcium bad. Yeah, calcium bad. It it would imply. Slightly bad. But, so that 60%, if you you turn that into a difference measure, is a difference of about less than 1%, uh, going up to about somewhere in the neighborhood of 3% was the maximum that they saw. If you take calcium. Yeah, 3% absolute difference. So... Now, that's not nothing. That is actually something. I don't mean to imply that it's nothing, but it gives you the sense for, you know, on a, on a, on a public, from a public health perspective, if we were to recommend this to lots of people, it's not like we would be seeing massive increases in the absolute per, uh, percentages of people developing hip fractures related to taking a calcium. But, right. you know, it's, it's, so there's something going on potentially, but it does not appear to be, um, it's huge on the absolute scale. It's right. not nothing, though. No, it's not nothing. And, and, and as you point out at, you know, at various times, even a relatively small effect size at the scale of a population, you know, can well, right. inaccurate lead to some Absolutely harm. Absolutely can. But we, you know, nonetheless, I think we take your point that this, these, these, are, these, are, these are relatively small effect size uh, and also um, fall within the bounds of possibly just a fortuitous association. That even, even after the meta-analysis, even after 50,000 50, subjects with X number of years of follow-up, we still don't have any evidence that, there, that it does really much of anything. It, it slightly nudges to increased harm, but that could also be just the glitchiness of data. I think one of the, one of the things that the authors do in the, in the discussion is that they, they, they point out the fact that um, in, in some of the larger cohorts, which, uh, and, and many of these co- cohorts contain um, mostly women, yep. and in some of the larger cohort studies that they included in the meta-analysis, they very specifically excluded women who were um, taking hormone replacement therapy, mm-hmm. in part mm-hmm. because they, impl- they they say that, that the role of these things in the setting of hormone replacement therapy is something that would... would um, obfuscate because some, totally fi- different question. some possible findings that we might have. Yeah. And, and the implication is that to a certain extent, it's more or less accepted that these things in the setting of hormone replacement therapy have been kind of accepted. And therefore we're looking at the part of the population that's separate from that. Absolutely. So the thing that I don't understand is wh- why is it sort of conventional wisdom that Calcium and or vitamin D, and I have to admit, I take both. And my doctor certainly wants me to take. Why? Both. You know, why is it that 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 conventional wisdom has bled over from these very specific findings in a very specific population of women taking hormone re- replacement therapy? And if in fact that's really the underlying story here, then maybe this study is really providing some valuable public health information. Yeah, at I, least I, making us question whether there should be a universal treatment outside mm-hmm. of this very small focus group. Yep. 
I, I agree with you. I want to raise one more, uh, two more points maybe, but one more point. Uh, so when you think about the, so these were randomized trials. So the the probability of confounding, particularly when you're meta-analyzing all these, putting all these studies together, starts to get very small. small. Mm-hmm. Not not zero, but but you, if if these studies were indeed done well, uh, the probability of confounding starts to go down. But that doesn't mean that randomized trials are not subject to bias. Uh, in particular, in this one, I wonder about um, uh, blinding and about compliance. So uh, it's easy enough, theoretically, it's easy enough to blind somebody as to whether or not they're taking calcium and vitamin D. Uh, you can give them a placebo pill that is uh, that that would taste the same. Mm-hmm. Although um, my understanding is calcium can potentially have GI complications or GI irritation uh, that could lead you to, to, to know you were potentially or stop taking mm-hmm. uh, your I calcium. Mean, generally, you, you take it as an antacid, calcium carbonate. So it, it shouldn't lead to... Tums. Tums is calcium. It's one of the okay. best sources of right. calcium. Uh, but that being said, uh, that if you if you were to... Uh, but but these are this is something you can get over the counter and People's doctors generally recommend this. And therefore, if I'm in this study, I could just as easily say, I don't know if I'm getting my my vitamin D or not. I'm just going to take another pill. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Now, some of these studies, if you go and look, they actually did assess this and and uh, uh, you know tried to determine whether or not people were doing that. But people aren't necessarily going to tell you the, the truth about that. So there's a potential that would have the effect of biasing towards no effect uh, because people are essentially both taking the the supplement so you you have the potential there um they also they don't, they're not comparing to placebo in this study they're comparing to placebo or no treatment depending on what the study did and if you yeah. got no treatment then you definitely know then you definitely know and you could uh you could supplement run down to CVS and get some calcium carbonate theoretically you could right. change your behavior because you know you're not getting your your calcium i doubt you know I think that's a big thing but um Anyway, so I, I just want to make the point that just because these are trials doesn't mean they were not subject to potential so sources of error. Let's think let's think that through because that's a very interesting point. Like supposing um, we took the extreme that that um, um, calcium was you know is is harmful. Let's just assume that it is harmful. That we're we're following the the trend of these meta analyses. Um, so you've got the intervention arm, which is uh, in in these sort of. Um, calcium versus Cal- no to be clear, treatments. Calcium alone. Yeah, calcium alone versus no treatment. So the control group knows that they're not receiving anything and is going to go down in CVS and self-supplement. But the intervention group knows they're getting calcium. So presumably they would be less likely to do that. So the the direction of that bias would, as you're saying, would shift us more towards the null, yep. right? So if that's true, then wouldn't that actually reduce the apparent harm if, due to calcium? If that were the right? case, yes. So in fact, calcium could be slightly worse than even this meta-analysis might imply in terms Possibly of its harmful so. effects Possibly on so. fractures. I do want to make it clear though, and I just want to, we've, we've harped on the calcium alone result if you look at the calcium plus vitamin d it's 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 uh pretty null a little bit protective right so so it isn't that that all of these studies found evidence of harm not statistically significant but evidence of harm but uh there is a small small protective effect 0.9 risk ratio 0.9 uh when comparing uh calcium and vitamin d uh sorry i'm looking at the wrong one it was 1.09 uh, for hip fracture, so ever so but, slightly but increased risk, ever but, so slightly, but so pretty tiny, much, tiny, tiny. pretty much no. Sorry, and then I was for total the fractures, was point nine. Fracture. Yeah, yeah, that was what I was looking at. Sorry. So uh, and 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 potentially, you know, some benefit for vertebral fracture, although very wide confidence, it'll be hard to say really anything's going on. 
So I, I, I'll, I'll leave it at that. But I, one, other, one other point I wanted to make, which is I don't know if you guys saw, but there is – this is a study. So I was asking you in the beginning why we needed another – study, and you pointed out this is not obviously the first trial set of trials. This is not the first meta-analysis. No. And in fact, it's not the first meta-analysis review of the meta-analyses that have been done. <laughs> there have been so many meta-analyses done on this. And I, uh, there was a nice paper in PLOS One which took this on as they were looking at the bigger picture of why do meta-analyses not always come to the same results, but they took on the vitamin D question specifically. So vitamin D and fracture, not calcium, not vitamin D plus calcium, vitamin D specifically, uh, and went and reviewed the different meta-analyses to find out why do these meta-analyses come to different conclusions. And the answer is, in some cases, uh, they're actually not doing a very good job of transposing the data from the meta-analysis. In other words, they're- they transcription errors? I don't mean transcription errors specifically, but they are being selective in which populations the, the, of the data they choose. Uh, they're not always applying their uh, inclusion and exclusion criteria correctly. But the biggest thing is they're not including the same trials because they are setting up their studies slightly different. And they're setting up their studies slightly different because they believe they are answering a slightly different question, kind of like we were talking about before. So we say, you know, I'm only going to look at the studies in patients under, you know, 50 or over 80 or whatever it is because, you know, we want to see if that's where the effect is. So they're not actually necessarily coming to different conclusions so much they're asking different questions, um, which you know I think is, is really important. The other thing that they don't really get into is uh, I think part of the reason why they come to quote-unquote different conclusions is because they're focused on statistical significance when in fact two meta-analyses are actually showing the same thing. One is significant and one isn't. And we treat significance as a magical thing, which we're going to get into in a minute. So we might as well Move into it unless anyone sure. wants any last thought on vitamin D and calcium. So we need to we need to knock meta analyses down a notch. Well, I think we I think we have to say, you know, there are phenomenal observational studies that can get at causation. Chris finally admitted that, and there are Sometimes. randomized trials that that can lead us astray. So I, you know, it is true in my opinion that the randomized trials definitely have a um, you know an advantage going in, but. That doesn't mean they are always uh, done well or <laughs> conducted well, and meta-analyses of those randomized trials aren't necessarily going to get us out of that problem. Sounds like there's no shortcut to applying common sense. Uh, no shortcut to rigorous study design and, evalu and, and, and evaluation. Yeah. But so regardless of the basic methodology behind it. That would it. be it. Isn't that, can't you characterize all public health as just applied common sense? Uh, you know, I, it's pretty darn close to that, yeah, isn't it? So. <laughs> but, but, I'm not it's always not, sure. It's not Ooh, that's just science. Maybe it's applied on common sense. I'm not. Uh, I would hope to not. Go down that all way. right, let's, so let's, let's shift gears and let's, let's pick up because that's the perfect time to do it and, and shift into a discussion of of statistical significance, which I should say we, we got into a little bit uh, in a couple of episodes back. And as you know, I have been avoiding this largely because it's a very difficult topic to take on in a short segment like this and explain all the problems that I have with hypothesis testing. Is this the promised p-value? No. Rant? No, it no. is not. This That's is the coming. hypothesis testing, which I want to distinguish from p-values, though they are related. Uh, we can have p-values without hypothesis testing. Uh, so uh, they aren't necessarily the same thing. And oh, so I think it's our a, audience is going to be so disappointed. Uh, we'll get to it eventually, <laughs> I'm sure. So it's a thorny subject. Um, so to get us into it, Chris, can you just walk us through what hypothesis testing is? And again, separate from p-values, specifically, what are we doing when we're hypothesis testing and why are we doing it? And this is the core scientific method. Right, the core scientific method, right. Uh, so... 
Um, Getting itchy over here. It's an it's an important concept in our discipline. Okay. Um, so I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna try to paraphrase a, a wise man on a, that I consulted on this su- subject about two hours ago. Oh, who's that? <laughs> it might be you. Wow. <laughs> I write um, Chris's script for him, just so you know. <laughs> well, you were you were prepping me to make sure I didn't go off the range. But or I'm, I gave you the wrong I'm, answer, so I could tell you that anyway. it's wrong. <laughs> so. Oh boy. Um, I mean, Wait we hypothesis testing. We we we're, we're, we 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 start with the assumption that uh, that there you've got two variables, or you've got an intervention and an outcome, two variables, right? And you, what you want to know is, you know, are the two of them related in some ways? And we causally. start causally, right? Well, not necessarily causally, because it could be an observational study, but there's a relationship. Between. It could be, but I, I think generally you're talking. But about let's about talk about causally. causally. You know, stick to to to, to like um, experimental conditions. Great. So we start with the baseline assumption that there is no relationship between these two. And what we're trying to do in hypothesis testing is to, is to see, can we, can we disprove the null hypothesis, that there is no association? What we call rejecting the null. Rejecting the null. And we do that by applying various statistical tests that, that in different ways look to see whether the results you have seen are so extreme in terms of you know, suggesting a relationship, a causal relationship, that that event probably does not has not occurred due to chance or is unlikely to have occurred due to a chance and and um you know it is it is not an ironclad proof of this i mean as you pointed out when we were talking earlier you can flip a, a quarter a hundred times and it could come up heads a hundred times probably probably not you can calculate the you can calculate the probability of that happening and it is a very small number but it could happen but it's not zero but it's not saying. zero so all, you know flukiness can happen you know you you can look up to a cloud and and see a smiling image of you know uh <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say Donald Trump, but I don't want to say that. Okay. I want to say I somebody else. Not going there. I was waiting for you to pull out some really abstract <laughs> metaphor. You know, so looking up at a cloud. Um, and so, in statistical reasoning, we 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 have said, okay, so we're we're going to we're going to draw a line in the sand. We're going to say there's a certain threshold where we're going to. Uh, say the the probability of this doing to chance is is so small that we're going to say the the the, the results we have observed are probably true, and historically that is at the threshold of 0.05. The p is less than 0.05, um, but it is also obvious that this is a completely arbitrary line in the sand. And to say that 0.05 is good and 0.06 is bad um, is completely logical. Completely illogical. Completely illogical. Uh, and, and so, but that is sort of the basis of, of hypothesis setting. And it, it is not a, it's not a, uh, a, a, it's not a bad concept. It is just a, a concept that can be misapplied, I think, and is easily misapplied. And I think there's probably too much attention paid to the p-value in, in deciding whether the hypothesis has been accepted, uh, or that is to say the null hypothesis has been rejected, if we're going to be purists about this. Um uh, but basically, in a nutshell, that's what it's about. We're, we're saying that you know, once you get down to a threshold of less than one in twenty chance that the data you see are due to random noise, we're going to say it is more likely than not that this is a true association. Okay, that's the guts of it. All right, so let me let me let me add a few clarifying points, uh, which is number one. Uh, so so this comes out of the the impetus to try to understand, you know. Uh, as you say, you know, we're trying to get at this idea of random error, the idea that we just, you know, we, we got a finding, but it's just, you know, association between two variables, but it was just because, you know, it was, we were... Chance. Yeah, I, I want to be careful with the word chance, but but that that, that it was just random random error that, that led to this problem. Okay, so so hypothesis testing is is the idea that we, as you say, we set up this this test of the null. 
And in order to do that, we have to assume the null is true. And then we calculate the probability of observing the data or anything more extreme generally is the way we do this if the null were true. So we're, we're not calculating, as people often think, the probability of the null being true. The null meaning no effect. So we're calculating the probability of the data if the null were true. And we're saying, you know, we know, the, we know what the null is, uh, we know the, what the data is, and so we can calculate the probability. And then hypothesis testing comes along and says, okay, once we know that probability, arbitrarily we've decided that if it's less than 5%, that we are gonna gonna reject the null. We're gonna say the null can't be true if if the p-value is less than 0.05, which again is is arbitrary and it's sort of backward logic, but it also makes the assumption that we did the perfect study. It makes the assumption that there is no bias in our study, which in observational studies, there's always bias. Even in randomized trials, we know there is often some amount of bias. So the idea that this this sort of fixed, this value can be interpreted strictly as some kind of a probability is odd, but we're talking about hypothesis testing, not p-values. Okay, so let me let me get into why I think it's this is problematic, and I'm going to use the the vitamin D study as my example of why I think hypothesis testing makes no sense, and what we should be focused on is precision, which we talked about in one of the earlier episodes. So, the estimate of the effect of calcium compared to placebo or nothing, which we just talked about. Uh, was a risk ratio of 1.53, a 95% confidence interval from 0.97 to 2.42. Okay, so that's a 50% increase in the risk of hip fracture associated with taking the calcium. Mm -hmm. But the authors conclude there's nothing specifically that we can say because the null is included, one in this case. A risk mm -hmm. ratio of one is the null. That's mm -hmm. in between 0.97 and yeah. 2.4. I see where you're going with this. And so it's yeah. not what we refer to as statistically significant. And yet, the, what I would say is the, the more appropriate interpretation of this data is there is some evidence of a small amount of harm. The data are far more compatible with harmful effects than they are with the null and certainly with any protective effect. But um, it's true that I can't say using statistical significance that I can exclude the null, mm -hmm. but I can say the probability of the null is far lower than the probability of, of a small harm. It's a far more nuanced interpretation. And so this of idea what, that yeah. we would dichotomize into a yes-no, it, it is or it isn't, is part of why I think you have all these meta-analyses getting at coming to different conclusions because it matters whether we're slightly right. on one side of the null or the other. Now, let me give you another one. Same same uh, meta-analysis. This was for uh, the estimate of vertebral fracture comparing calcium to placebo or nothing. Risk ratio 0.83. So that would indicate protective effect. 95% confidence interval from 0.66 to 1.05. So just on the far side of one, one they say not statistically significant, <laughs> which would be a true statement. But certainly here, the data are far more compatible with minor, minor or small amounts of protective effects. Small, mm -hmm. very small. I can't exclude the null completely, no, but I can never exclude the null completely. But certainly there's no evidence here. There's very little evidence here for harm. Now let me give you the last one. Vitamin D uh, alone compared to placebo or nothing for vertebral fracture. Risk ratio of 1.01, 95% confidence interval from 0.87 to 1.17. The point estimate is pretty much on the null. The confidence interval is fairly narrow. I'm confident here that there's not much going on. There's Best case, worst case, tiny, it's the tiny same. benefit, a tiny, tiny harm. Who cares? Yeah, it's a wash. There's nothing there. Right? Precision is what matters here. Statistical significance is this sort of 
uh, arbitrary system that we made up to, to, to determine whether something is meaningful or not meaningful, ignoring both the actual data itself and the clinical significance of this. And I think it, 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 it ruins everything. So, you know, what I, we always teach our students is the goal of epidemiology is to obtain a valid and precise estimate of the effect of an exposure on an outcome. Valid meaning no systematic error or minimize systematic error. Precise meaning we minimize random error. We have a big enough study, big enough sample size to be able to say what we're saying. And nothing in that definition of a valid and precise estimate of the effect of an exposure on an outcome is anything about statistical significance. We yeah. don't throw out data because it's not significant and we don't take it as important because it is significant. So that's 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 my rant. So why why is the p value achieved such prominence? Do you think is it is it is it simply I think it's publication that it is, bias? It's it's a convenient bias, metric that everybody recognizes, and it's just like accepted and been, been sort of been part of the meme of statistical yeah, reasoning. I think the, the, I think, I think edit I think editors are looking for a binary choice, and if they, if it achieves statistical significance, it is of more value in the minds of the editors to the readership, and therefore um, th- th- they choose to read it, which is which then does in fact lead to publication bias because all of those instances where you cannot say that it is, quote, statistically significant, but where there is a trend effect, just like you're saying, Matt, those those papers tend to be published less often mm-hmm. than those that are or just- Or in lower tier journal. Or in lower tier journals yep. than, than if there is a 0.05 effect. And I think that that adds to the harm that, that you're talking about in terms of us really understanding what is the the basic causal truth. I would agree with you. I would agree with you. So so let me end with two, two things. Uh, so uh, this meta-analysis, again, where I think this uh, obsession with significance gets in the way, so you know I'm a counter. So I went through, there are 20 instances of the word- significant in the meta-analysis that we just look at, right? It's all about whether is this finding or this finding or this finding significant or not, right? And mm-hmm. it ignores what the yeah. data are actually telling us. Yeah. And this leads to, the, the problem is then, so then if, as Don, as you say, if significance, statistical significance is what's going to get you into the published literature, or at least in the higher tiered literature, then that leads to this dance that people start to do when you don't achieve significance, but you get kind of close to it, mm-hmm. uh, where you start calling things like a trend. Trend. marginally significant or a trend, borderline. borderline significant, things like that, which don't exist, by the way. Those are not real things. But right. that's a way of saying uh, we, we think there's did something not here. find significance, but we still want to get published. So there's a guy uh, named Matthew Hankins at the University of Southampton School of Health Sciences who uh, cataloged all the different ways that people refer to these things. Oh, this is good. <laughs> saying things like, you know, a barely detectable statistically significant difference, a borderline significant trend, a certain trend towards significance, a clear tendency towards significance. Okay, let me a just show you tendency. here. tendency. I like that. Let me just show you here. <laughs> This is like oh my god! This is going on for page after page after page. Can I have a copy of that? I could page. use that. Oh yeah! But let me read you some of my. Well, let me, that let that me, could be kind of really handy. Let me give you some of my favorites here. A slight slide towards significance. Slide S L I D E. Uh huh. A worrying trend. <laughs> all but significant. A, a worrying trend. An encouraging trend. An established trend. Established trend. Uh, arguably significant. How about a statistically significant trend? At the very edge of significance, which I call for a band title, <laughs> barely, esca- barely escapes being statistically significant. Barely escapes. I like that, that one. Sounds like a, like, like a threat. Essentially significant. Oh, my God. Failed to reach significance on this occasion. Oh, well, that's true. Inconclusively significant. Hovering closer to statistical significance. <sighs> flirting with conventional levels. <laughs> heading towards... 
Medium level of significance, God, narrowly escaped. This is double, this is scientific double thing. Just skirting the boundary. I love this. This I could go on and on. Perceivable statistic. How statistic. long did it take him Quantum to compile statistic. this? I have no idea, but I am so grateful to him that for doing beautiful. this. Post that on the website. Like, we should post that Check on the website. Yeah, that is we can absolutely definitely beautiful. do that, but it's on, it's on his website. Oh, we can, just, uh, we can, we can link to his mchankins.wordpress.com. It's fantastic. Fantastic. I love All that. right. So that's a, that's a good transition into our last segment, which is our Amazing and Amusing, where we highlight some of the things that uh, Don likes to say are our wacky science, some of the things that make our job a little easier, things that we enjoy. Chris, you want to you wanna go first this time? Yeah, I don't so have much of a wacky and weird one. I have a historical paper that I found. Um, uh, this is, uh, again, from a journal I keep going back to again and again, the Proceedings of the National Academies of Science. It's a good one. It, yeah, it's a really great journal, and it covers all disciplines. So it's not just um, bench science, but it's public health and everything. I mean, it's, it's a fantastic omnibus journal. And um, they're rigorous, and they're interesting, and they're also often quirky. Yeah. And this was a, a historical um, review of the discovery of human T-cell lymphotrophic virus 1, um, which is probably not a, a, a virus that... that HTLV-1, which is probably not a, not a virus that many people have heard of, um, but it's an important virus. It, it's, a, it's a member of the retrovirus family, and it was discovered by a guy called um, Robert Gallo, um, who most people know is the, the fellow who was at least partially um, you know, attributed to having discovered HIV. There was probably the French guy, Luc Montaigne, who did yeah. it first. Yeah, I, I, yeah um, there's a little bit of, a bit of an issue there. It has now been established that it was the Luc movie? And the band played on. Yeah, and the band played on. That was a book. Yeah, good book. And a movie. Yeah. yeah. Um, and anyway, it, it is it, the the the, um, the editorial was written by John Coffin, um, who oh, yeah. was a, a pal of my dad's way back in the day, um, well, and now. was at the National Cancer Institute, and then it's now at, at Tufts, uh, Tufts University School of Medicine. And he kind of goes through the whole history of the discovery of HTLV one, and and sort of the the steps that went into it, and why this was so important. And I thought it was really nice to look back on this. Um, and I'll I'll quickly touch on the the high points that. Back in the 1970s was when we first discovered this this quirky family of viruses called retroviruses, and um, the 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 dogma at the time um, was that when you are making when a cell is making things, you have DNA as sort of like the the the, the you know, the library hard copy of the information from which you take a piece and you copy it into a messenger RNA molecule. And then you take that working copy, which is like your Xerox copy of the textbook from the, 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 the library, and you go downstairs and then you work with it. And you make that thing. You make that blueprint. You make that protein off it. So you have DNA, RNA, protein, DNA, RNA, protein. It's essential biologic dogma. S essential biologic. And this is how pr basically all cells, all eukaryotic and prokaryotic cells work. And, and, and yet there was this... Um, family of viruses, which appeared to do the opposite, where they took an RNA molecule and converted it into a DNA molecule, which was then inserted into the host cell genome, and they're called a provirus. And then from the provirus would follow the usual biological dogma of DNA, RNA, protein. And this was such an extraordinary idea that, a, that, that there was an enzyme that could swim upstream mm -hmm. from RNA to DNA um, that eventually, you know, it was initially not believed and, and ultimately validated and led to a Nobel Prize. Um, so this was a, a, a fantastic discovery. And it also allowed you to create an assay that could search for retroviruses because now you all you have to do is look for the activity of this retroviral oh, enzyme. Clever. So any virus that is capable of swimming backwards can be, can be uh, uh, tested for in tissue samples. No, so that's sort of the big background. That was 10 years before oh, that's this. That's not it? That's that not your wacky? It. But this was, this was part of it. I thought and that was your being, wacky. 
No, no. So it it, it it then sort of proceeded on with a, with a series of, of of interesting co-occurrences. One, which is that Bob Gallo had sort of gone into this line of research with the National Cancer Institute to study retroviruses, and there were many examples of of retroviruses in animals and birds that had were capable of causing disease. But at that time, no one had ever found a retrovirus that could cause disease in humans. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what Gallo was trying to do is to, is to find, was there in fact a, a, a human retrovirus that was pathogenic? And he ultimately stumbled across the human T-cell lymphotrophic virus because of discovery of this strange cluster of, of, of unfortunate patients, mostly who died in Kyushu, Japan, who lived very close together in this, in this sort of isolated community who were developing this very rare form of leukemia. Um, and then a, a similar uh, subject was, was brought to the National Cancer Institute, who I think had origins in Haiti. And so there were, the, or at least Caribbean origins. And so all of these things sort of eventually came together and um, led to the discovery of the human T cell lymphotropic virus number one. Of course, they just called it HGLV at the time because it was the first and only. Yep. Um, now, that was interesting because HGLV one is, is, was the first and still only retrovirus that is known to, known to cause cancers in humans. And HGLV one disease is a, a terrible disease. But rare, very rare disease, frankly. On a global scale, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a very small contribution to overall cancer, but it is an important and interesting one. But the more interesting thing about it is that two years after he described the discovery of HGLV-N1 and had done it by creating this assay that allowed you to culture HGLV-1 in T-cells, in human T-cells, using interleukin-2 to stimulate T-cells to grow in, in tissue culture. And without being able to grow T-cells, you can't grow viruses that live in T-cells. And that test, that, that procedure, was what allowed them to then culture HIV, mm-hmm. which was initially mm-hmm. called HTLV-3. Right. And HTLV-4 came right after, but now we know them as HIV-1 and HIV-2. And so the discovery of the retroviruses and the assays to look for retroviruses and then the, the, the tissue culture systems that allow you to grow certain retroviruses then allowed us to suddenly, you know, fortuitously leap upon this discovery of this unusual case cluster of, cool. of cases uh, of what we now call AIDS in California. California and New York City, uh, without which, you know, we can say if, if we had not discovered this when we did, in the time we did, if I mean, presumably it would have been discovered eventually, but had there been another 10-year delay in figuring out what was causing the syndrome of AIDS, literally millions of people would have died. Yeah. So this is, this is like, you know, you think about the power of basic science and how that turns into applied discoveries, and I think this is a really, this is a really great arc okay. in research history. I would, I would classify that as amazing. Yeah. I would put that cool, in the amazing very category. Cool story. Very cool. All right. Well, I'm I'm gonna go next, Don. I'm gonna let you go. I'll let you go last. So, uh, do you guys believe in the concept of man flu? Oh yes, man flu. Yes, I have Don that has often. No idea what man, what is flu, man is. flu is. It's like the magic table, the magic coffee table. I know. What? I know what mansplaining is. It's like that. It's <laughs> oh, the God. well. It's essentially the idea that when a when a man gets a cold, it's. It's it's really bad, and we whine and complain a lot. And we need we need a lot of help from our significant others. It is so uh, prevalent that the Oxford English Dictionary actually has defined it now. Uh, in, the, in essence, we're wusses. That's pretty much it. So it's a cold or similar minor ailment as experienced by a man who is regarded as exaggerating the severity of the symptoms. <laughs> as in, Greg was off sick with the man flu, according to his wife. That is the Oxford English Dictionary for man flu. Okay. Nailed. So this comes this from disease. this comes from an article uh, from Health News Review by Alan Castles, Cassells, Castles, uh, entitled Of Mice and Man Flu. 
And he's picking up on the fact that there was a, an article that came out, and I'll read you the, the headlines that he pointed me to uh, about this article, the, the scientific article that came out. It says, uh, the headline, so this is Newsweek, says, Man flu, men complain when they're sick because they are weaker than women, science confirms. <laughs> LA Times, is man flu real? Medical science delivers comfort to helpless male snufflers. USA Today, does he have man flu? One researcher claims it's for real. And CNN says, laid up with the man flu, it's real, researchers said. <laughs> the, only, the only problem here is that the article that they are referencing is from our favorite. The Christmas edition. The Christmas edition of the 2017 BMJ, an article by Kyle Sue. Uh, who's a professor, assistant, clinical assistant professor in family medicine in, in uh, uh, Memorial University of Newfoundland in Canada, who wrote an article on the science behind man flu. Now, it is theoretically a serious-ish article in that it does actually reference actual science, but it's clearly designed it's a, it's to make the case for mm -hmm. why man flu might exist uh, under the uh, assumption that men have weaker immune systems, uh, and therefore, in, as has been demonstrated, potentially in mice and things like that, just a lower tolerance to pain. A lower all. tolerance to pain. We don't. We don't. We don't. We don't childbirth, so yeah. we don't know about pain. Exactly. So I just thought it was fantastic that uh, now he does point out that some of the some of these media articles did actually sort of act have uh, their tongue in cheek, recognize a little bit that it was tongue in cheek, but not all of them. And I just thought it was a fantastic example of the the BMJ Christmas edition once again. Bullets Getting into trouble. Yes. All right, Don, what do you got? All right, so um, I'm going to um, go from the sublime to the probably ridiculous. Um, I also pulled an article from the BMJ Christmas Excellent. edition. But this is from 2008, and the title of this article is Head and Neck Injury, Risks in Heavy Metal, Headbangers Stuck Between <laughs> Rock and a Hard Base. Oh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> sure, sure. Sure, sure. So apparently there's this phenomenon that started with the first national tour of Led Zeppelin in 1968 in Boston. Okay. When um, the audience was noted to synchronously be banging their heads on the stage. Mm -hmm. And from that has evolved this convention in heavy metal band concerts of headbanging. Mm -hmm. And apparently there are a whole different set of ways in which one can headbang. Now, it doesn't always Makes mean sense. that you come in contact with a, you know, with a stationary object, but a lot of the band members, as well as the audience, will do this headbanging, sure. which is- Which Chris a, is a, apparently uh, doing right now. There are several types. There's the um, up-down, uh -huh. side-to-side, no. and then circular headbanging. What? Yeah. Um, I only know about the up-down. So, I like to show, throw my hair around right now. So, so, so this article by Chris Declan is bald, for anyone who doesn't know Declan Patton and Andrew McIntosh, who are who are uh, I think that they are specialized biomechanics. And so what they did is they did a study where they went out um, and observed a whole bunch of different kinds of heavy metal bands, identified what was the most prevalent kind, type of headbanging, which was up and down headbanging. Definitely head is up and down. They Everybody then, knows that. They then in a biomechanical way, wrote a model to determine what was the level of head injury based on the angle of the head banging and the tempo of the music. Oh, yeah. Wow. And so they, they, they built these models so that they could predict the amount of, uh, of uh, damage that could potentially be done given a particular song or a particular, um, a, a particular tempo. 
And one of the things that they they did an observational study. Apparently, they attended Motorhead, Motley Crue, Skid Row, and White Snake concerts. Ooh, some of my favorites. <laughs> they. Um, uh, tried to determine what was the maximum angle and um, uh, beats per Amplitude. minute, the angles of headbanging and Frequency, beats per minute yeah. that would that would confer the the most damage. Um, and they had ten. Please musicians, say Motley Crue. Please, ten, say Motley Crue. Please say Motley Crue. Ten, ten musicians were asked to, to um, nominate the ten best headbanging songs. Oh, <laughs> and they put good. In, they put in parentheses musical training or talent was not a prerequisite for participation good, 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 in good. that. Uh, so the average tempo for heavy metal is 146 beats per minute, but there are some bands like Motley Crue, Kickstart My Go Heart, Motley Crue. that play at 180 beats per minute. Wow. With a, uh, so that they Presto. determined that a range of motion needs to be below 45 degrees to avoid head, head injury. Oh, so, so they come up with a bunch of prescriptions for how one might be able to reduce the likelihood of injury when you were attending your next metal band um, concert. Fantastic. And so they, and then they suggest some interventions and the possible interventions to reduce the risk of injury caused by headbanging include limiting the range of neck motion through a formal training program delivered before, <laughs> before a concert. I'd attend. I'd definitely attend. S- substitution of adult-oriented rock and easy listening definitely <laughs> music. Definitely not. That's out. Uh, including Michael Bolton and Celine Oh, my Dion. God. My God, Kenny that would G. be terrible. Get some Kenny G uh, going. Or, or uh, uh, the use of personal protective equipment, such yes. as neck braces, to limit the range of You would of definitely motion. be cool if you wore a neck brace to the Motley Crue concert. <laughs> <A> future, <laughs> that is for sure. Future research will involve neuropsychological testing so of concert goers to so validate smart. the model presented in this paper. That's I think a, I was I think I was practical. 10 years old when I won a, a Motley Crue t-shirt Did you at go? the uh, no no at the at the town uh, town carnival and I I wore that thing to death. Pretended I went. I didn't actually go. All right. Well, there you go. We're going to end on that one. So, that's the end of our show. If you've got any feedback on this or any other episode, you want to suggest a topic or a study for us to take on, you can tweet us at, at @pophealthyx. Or you can tweet me at at Prof Matt Fox or Chris at, at ID Doc Gill or Don at, at DTheo1. Or you can find us on the Population Health Exchange website. Again, that's www.pophealthyx.org. We want to thank Leslie Talalian, Director of Lifelong Learning at BU School of Public Health, for supporting the podcast, and Nick Guler for sound and editing. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed it, and we hope you download that next episode. We are out. Mm-hmm.